You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. I'm your host, Bill Kite, and today our guest is Connor Coleman. Connor is the founder of Resiliency Lands, a private land management consultant based in the Roaring Fork Valley with a mission of helping conservation-minded landowners and managers. Welcome, Connor. Howdy, Bill. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, um, I've looked at your website. I've, I've known you for a few years, and I'm kind of impressed that you really have got some good work going on. Um, you want managers to operate more efficiently. That's what you work with them for. You want them to diversify their revenue streams, and we'll get to that a little bit later, and then create resiliency and, and the hopes of keeping the land in the hands of good stewards. But my question to you this afternoon is, what in your life prompted you to become involved in land resiliency? So it's it's been a long yet relevant path to get to where I am today. I grew up just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, just two miles from the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and was fortunate enough to have that as my playground. And, and I was one of those families that took summer vacations to national parks and state parks and uh, I've got a box full of junior ranger badges at home. Right. And uh, so I, I, at a young age, developed this love for nature. Um, so it was no surprise that I decided to study environmental science and in college. But at, at that point, I was much more of, uh, I guess, what you would call a preservationist. I really liked the parks and the idea of keeping things natural. Um, but towards the end of my college career, I, I started gaining exposure to, to working lands, farmers, ranchers, timber managers, and and started to understand their place in, in the whole scheme of things. And uh, I thought I was going to study wildlife biology, but through opportunities to work with local land trusts, I began to understand what uh, role land conservation has in, in, the, in, this, in this world um, and for the wildlife that I loved. And so I kind of pivoted a little bit and started getting interested in land conservation and, and worked for a few land trusts back east and then went to grad school to learn how to manage land. I felt kind of drawn to taking care of land uh, from a more active standpoint and went to graduate school for that and kind of felt myself getting drawn to the West. If I was going to do this, I wanted to work with private landowners and, and work on a large scale and, and out West is where that seems to be. And Ranching is part of that, and an opportunity to move out to Colorado in 2012, and uh, started really understanding working lands firsthand. So that that's kind of how I, I my evolution. All right. Well, well. Thanks for that that intro. That's the best intros come from people who know what they're talking about, and the best people who know what they're talking about are the people who are talking. So thanks, Connor. You know, you founded uh, Resiliency Lands in 2016. Um, tell us how this came about and how it has changed your life, basically. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, when I moved out in 2012, uh, I came to work on ranches. I, I was working for a family-run ranch management company, and at the time they ran two very large ranches, uh, a 90,000-acre ranch east of Colorado Springs and, and a 103,000-acre ranch in the San Luis Valley. Uh, I got a crash course in ranching during my time uh, working with them. Uh, but then an opportunity with the Aspen Valley Land Trust here in Carbondale presented itself, and, and I capitalized on it. Didn't expect to get back in the land trust world, but it seemed like a, a great community, great landscape, and 
and, and the position was was appealing. Um, so I, I did that for a few years, but then after two or three years, my heart started pulling me back towards towards land management and and while I was at AVLT, I was able to work with over 170 landowners here in the Roaring Fork and Middle Colorado River Valleys and really got exposure to just how diverse uh, the people in the landscape can be in such a, a small area. And it all came together that I decided to start my own consulting firm. And some of my first clients were landowners that I'd worked with during my time at the Land Trust. Um, and they were all here locally and, and had some great opportunities. And, uh, you know, I will say, though, having this whole career in a non- the nonprofit sector and, and coming from a family of civil servants, I didn't really have the business background. And, and so I've been playing catch up with that, but, you know, starting to really feel comfortable with that. And here I am seven plus years later and, and still still making it work. Um, and, and now I have projects that are all across the country and, and really enjoying it. And, and the thing that keeps me getting up every morning, get, keeps me excited about this work is that I'm constantly having to learn. And I love learning uh, when it comes to land. You know, policy is constantly changing, new legislation, new funding, new science, right. new attitudes. Um, and, and so my place is to keep up on all these changes and uh, the evolution of, of the landscape and the culture and, and be that person that brings that information to landowners and managers so that they can, they can do their job uh, as well as possible. And you've been doing a lot of traveling too. And I hope we have time to get to get to some of the travels you've, you've been on lately, but uh, let's get to your website. It, it states that uh, your goal is ecological resiliency and it's the ability for the land to withstand disturbances while sustaining health and productivity. What exactly uh, is that in a layman's terms? What what does that mean for a layman? Yeah, great question. You know, prior to the pandemic, I felt like the only time I heard the word resiliency was, was in the classroom or textbooks, uh, reading about land management. Um, but you know, being resilient and finding resiliency during the pandemic was was key for for many people. Um, so you know, we're hearing it a lot more. But you know, when I think of it, uh, in regards to ecological resiliency, that is the ability for the the landscape to endure hardships, stressors, and and even disasters. Um, and since so many of the lands I work on are working lands, environmental resiliency is directly tied to economic resiliency. You know, we saw in, in 2018 the Lake Christine fire. We saw the Grizzly Creek fire in 2020 here. Um, and, and it was very clear that the environmental management or even mismanagement of lands directly impacts our economy. Um, but then also during the, the start of the COVID pandemic, we saw just how fragile our food systems are. And, and these local farmers and food producers became kind of these unsung heroes across the country and, and beyond. And, you know, because they were in business and were able to endure and have that resiliency, we were able to continue to provide food and, and uh, fiber and timber uh, across the country. So to me, that is resiliency. How do we, how do we keep the landscape and the people working on it? doing good for as many people as possible keeping, for as long as possible. Yeah, keeping things whole, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
You know, last month we had uh, Ken Newbecker on the show, and we talked about the Colorado River. And right as I was, uh, right as the show was getting over, he said something that I'll never forget. When I said, "Well, what, what do you, what can the average person do?" and he said, "Turn your water off when you're brushing your teeth." <laughs> and so I, that has stuck with me ever since. But he also talked about how water is life, the sacredness of water. And uh, would you say the same thing about land? Absolutely. You know, there are parallels, without a doubt, between land and water. I mean, they are literally interwoven. Um, Turning on the sink, flushing the toilet, taking a shower, watering our lawns, they're all kind of mindless activities, but they involve water. You know, water is much more literally in our our face on a a daily basis. Um, Some people do have the fortune of, you know, floating rivers or fishing lakes or surfing the ocean and have kind of that exposure and, and a relationship to the source. Um, but land can be a little more obscure. You know, there's a lot of people who feel like they don't have a connection with land or haven't really experienced large swaths of land. And, and I think in the minds of many people, that's required to be able to have a relationship with land. But, uh, you know, even a backyard garden or a community garden, a food plot will feed your family uh an urban lot just some trees on it you know has an impact on climate change and and regulate our climate so i I think you know it's different you have to be more intentional when you think about land and your relationship with it um but it's also it's very personal and and also the other aspect that i i would say is different that land differs from water in, in this regard is that there's a lot of history with land that necessarily isn't necessarily the same with water, especially here in the West where we're acknowledging uh, and developing curiosity in the past owners, uh, whether it's a decade ago, a century ago, millennia ago. Um, you know, also I have projects in, in the South in, in the Carolinas and there's an added layer of the history there with slavery and agriculture and it, a lot of it's been obscured and buried and it, it takes effort and interest and intention to kind of dig that up and to man to me to effectively manage land uh, we have to look backwards before we look forward so very good point and you know looking backwards we only look it seems like to the historic record but for a millennium uh the indigenous people on the land had relationships that they didn't live necessarily off the land as much as they lived with the land. We were talking about that before the show a little bit and like to to uh, continue that over a beer someday. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. You're listening to KDNK's public affairs program for land's sake. Today our guest is Connor Coleman. Connor, if you could uh, kind of walk us through how you go about helping a landowner um, who's maybe contemplating cons- uh, conserving their lands, and what steps would you take to help them? Just give us an example, if you would. You know, having that whole career in, in nonprofit land conservation, I, I learned so much and, and really enjoyed it and have the utmost respect for land trusts and conservation groups. Um, but what I've also realized over time is that when it comes to conserving land, land trust or, uh, you know, whatever agency is, is 
conserving the land legally, um, is sitting on one side of the table, and the landowner they're working with is sitting on the other side of the table. The land trust doesn't really get to or isn't really allowed to advise the landowner in this process, you know, what to keep, what to protect, what right. to give up. Um, so part of my place in this and having the background in both conservation and management is to help these landowners figure out uh, what's worth holding on to, what's worth uh, relinquishing, um, you know, how do we think decades or even centuries out? Um, you know, I, I say, you know, think about your grandkids. What are, if, if, if your goal is to keep it in the family, are they going to be able to effectively take care of this place? Um, so my first question when I work with a client is, what are your goals? You know, some of them, their goal is to preserve a legacy. Some of them are dead set on environmental preservation or conservation. And some of them really just are trying to figure out ways to make money so that they can hold on to the land um, without having to sell it. So we explore all these different options, and conservation easements are, are part of that. Um, you know, here in, in the Roaring Fork Valley, we have the Aspen Valley Land Trust as the local uh, organization, but we also have Pickens County Open Space. Uh, Eagle County has an open space program. Uh, there's different state agencies and state-level land trusts that are out there, and even in national-level entities. And so I help these landowners kind of shop around and find the group to work with that best fits their goals, objectives, and um, that they can have a, a long-term relationship with. So that's you know a large part of what I do. But then we also explore some other options. You know, when you do a conservation easement, it is forever. And sometimes right. these easements preclude you from other opportunities, especially with these emerging uh, what we call payment for ecosystem services markets like wetland banking, wetland mitigation, um, carbon banking, whether that's forest, soil, or even this, this new market called blue carbon, which you find at the coast. Um, so we, you know, I, I really help them talk through these different options and, and see what fits and, and make sure that their long-term goals can be met. And whatever conservation they do is is a is a benefit, not a hindrance. You know, uh, when we were emailing back and forth, it's been a while since I've seen you, and we were we were emailing. You mentioned that there's some ways to develop revenue streams, new revenue streams for uh, landowners, such as agritourism, hunting, and outfitting, or farm to table dinners, and even weddings. So, how does that resonate with with your clients when? You, are they looking for something like that, or how does that? How do you fit that in? No, that's a, that's a great question, Bill. And and I, you know, every property is unique, um, and there's different opportunities based on your location, just from the, the climate and the landscape, um, and also the politics. And my kind of initial approach would, you know, put a couple different options, a couple dozen options in front of landowners and ways we can generate revenue um, some some landowners I will say well you know we can have weddings out here and they will without taking a breath say absolutely not we're not going <laughs> right. to do that and that's right. fine but um, in some cases that could be a very lucrative revenue stream you know we saw during covid uh, you know a lot of weddings were put on hold a lot of events had to be outside that includes you know dining events. And so there was quite the uptick in interest and demand for outdoor venues and gathering places. 
And oddly enough, I spent a lot of 2020 and 2021 on the phone with wedding planners and event planners who were looking for uh, venues that weren't necessarily on the market at that point uh, for availability. And so we were able to create revenue streams on all of these ranches that were trying to figure out how to navigate this crazy world and this crazy time. And uh, so that's one approach, you know, farm to table dinners, not only create a revenue stream for landowners, but they create a conversation, especially, you know, you know, hence the name farm to table, you're, you're sitting out there on the property in the land that is producing that food and you get to see its source. And uh, it's, it's hard, it's almost impossible not to have a conversation about where it comes from and the story behind it. And you know, how to be involved in making sure that these experiences continue to exist into the future. We had uh, Jared Kirst of um, Rivendale Farms. He's he's going back into trying to pull the land uh, together and, and doing a really good job of it, I think. And, and so, you know, any way that farmers and ranchers can come up with ways to make money aside from what they started out doing uh, helps a lot. But the one thing you talked about navigating just a little bit is pretty hard I think these days navigating land politics so I I don't I don't know how many uh, uh, ranchers and farmers really want to get into that but that's also necessary isn't it for you to help them navigate the land politics yeah absolutely you know there are there are some uh, unicorns out there in in the ranching and farming world that are willing to get out in front of uh, a crowd or, or the politicians and you know we're fortunate here in the valley with Mike Strang and um, serving in, in Congress and, and, you know, Bill Fales and Marge Perry getting out. And, and there's, there's a, lot sure. of, a lot of yeah. other ones that are, that are willing to, to take a break from the tractor or, or uh, from working cattle to, to make a trip to Denver or D.C., but that's not always the case. And to get a lot of these things done, uh, whether it's conservation, uh, whether it's funding for these these new markets or or better management um understanding why zoning or or, you know uh, county code needs to change uh requires conversations and education at all levels and so i i i am fortunate i get to I, i enjoy interacting with those people i think there's a lot of good people on on all levels and uh here in the valley we've got four different counties that make up uh, the Roaring Fork Valley and, and the commissioners that go with that. We have different layers of uh, state or, or different districts of state government. Um, we've obviously have our two senators and, and our representative and their staffers come to a lot of the meetings in the valley uh, regarding land conservation. So it's, it's always good to provide all of them with as much information as possible. And in my opinion, I think a lot of them are very good at uh, listening and asking questions. Right. Uh, over the last few years, you mentioned that you've developed an interest in utilizing food and cuisine as a economic driver for land management. Tell us a little bit about that. That sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, it was. It was. It was kind of a no-brainer once I I was able to look back. But uh, the wild thing is, over all my years in, in education and, and working with land. It wasn't really part of the conversation. And when it came to food, 
people thought about mass, you know, mass-produced food feedlots and and large-scale farms, corporate farms, um, and you know, we saw again during COVID just how disconnected we were from food, and was able to start having these conversations and you know, chefs as well. We're like, how, how do I get this or how do I get that? We're not able to click uh, order on Cisco or Shamrock's website and have it show up as we expected. Um, so from that, a lot more conversations started happening and and uh, the, the people that were ordering food or preparing food started becoming uh, curious and, and some great conversations were had out of that. And, and that kind of led to you know, a lot of the, the travels and things that you uh, mentioned earlier. Yeah, because you even went to Mexico City with a chef, so that must have been a fun trip. It was it was a trip of a lifetime. I spent 10 days down in Mexico City at the end of October, early November of 2022, uh, and it, it, it was it's funny how it came, came to be. Uh, I knew I wanted to make a trip to warmer weather one day, uh, pre-COVID, and then obviously the world kind of said no. And so I said, well, you know, we're all sitting here. I'm going to maybe learn Spanish. And so I started, right. you know, taking some Spanish lessons. And to help me with that, I was watching shows on Netflix and TV and in Spanish with English subtitles, one of them being the, the Taco Chronicles on Netflix. All right. And <laughs> just became infatuated with Latin cuisine and how so many of these cultures, especially in, in Latin America, use whole animals uh, in in their cooking. And it, it's not a novelty. It's it's an everyday place. Right. And so really started getting curious about that and met this chef, uh, Oscar Padilla, uh, last summer at the Heritage Fire event in Snowmass. And we, we started talking, and he's from Mexico City, and his family's all down there. And uh, he was making a trip. I decided to make my trip overlap with it, and we had a wonderful time, got to experience Dia de los Muertos down there and uh, have amazing food, visit farms and uh, a butchery and, you know, a slaughterhouse and, and had a very uh, intimate experience down there. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, hey, how can we, uh, especially here in this area with the growing Latino population, uh, use food and provide opportunities not just for culinary experiences but also maybe create jobs exactly yeah creating jobs is is always important uh, no matter no matter where we live people need jobs and uh, that sounds like a pretty good challenge right there you know I like to ask people who are on the show uh, if they could tell us what they can do as individuals or have individuals do to help the situation that that you've described of especially any land managers or landowners what what are the steps they go through in order to get hold of you you know the best way to get a hold of me is uh you can find me on my website resiliencylands.com or my email is connor c-o-n-n-o-r at resiliencylands.com all right sounds good so I'm sure you've got some other good stories of the years you've been doing all this. So think of a think of a good story you might come up with and let us let us know what uh, what what you're thinking. Man, a, a good story. Um, wow. Well, so you know, as I was uh, as as I mentioned 
during graduate school back east, I, I realized I wanted to come to the west, and uh, I was trying to find a job, you know, applying online, and, and was not having much luck. I found I found it very difficult to be uh, to, to land a job in the West not having experience here and, and was fortunate I had an interview with the Colorado Cattlemen's Land Trust and their final interview question to me it was a, it was a great interview and, and their last question really caught me off guard they said what is your favorite breed of cattle and why and uh, I, I was really caught off guard um, but fortunately I had this wonderful relationship with a, a 90 I think eight-year-old uh, landowner in North Carolina who was widowed and just spent so many hours telling me stories about how his wife raised uh, pulled shorthorns and and showed them and had all these blue ribbons and so that's that was my answer was was pulled shorthorn because of those stories but it just always made me think back to just how much joy he got out of uh, being a, a farmer and, and having a, a family who enjoyed that and the connection with land. So uh, a little hokey, but that, that's, uh, that's a, a story that's, that's a will, good story. will go with me to the grave. So what in your experience here in the West, what, what are your feelings about what, what breed do you like or what breed have you seen be real successful? Man, uh, all over the place, you know, it, it, there's a lot of factors into it. Uh, I, I eat a lot of Piedmontese, which is a, a breed that comes out of Italy that a chef friend uh, turned me on to years ago that's uh, low in, in intermuscular fat and, and low in cholesterol, and, and I think delicious. Um, but also I work with a lot of ranchers, and I get a lot of beef from them, and you can tell from the, the quality of care that they receive, you know, high quality uh, nutrition in the grasses. Uh, I do enjoy grass-finished beef, which isn't for everyone, but I, I primarily eat grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Um, you know, I was just at, uh, visiting with Jared Kirst, who you mentioned earlier yeah. the other day, and we were eating some of his Plus Lazy K beef for Boy, dinner. Boy, we've, we've had some really good meals. And if, once you eat grass-fed beef, you go back to the supermarket. It's not the same, is it? It's really not, and uh, I don't I, know why you wouldn't want to eat grass-fed beef. <laughs> I, I agree. Every now and again, I'll buy a steak at the grocery store just to remind myself of what uh, most people are, are consuming. You know, uh, what's your next steps? I was going to ask you what your next plans are, but looks like we're just about out of time. So it's been really a pleasure to have you and to see you again, Connor. And uh, if you're interested in listening to more of uh, Talk About Land, you're listening to For Land's Sake, and you can join us next time on the second Monday of July, July the 10th, at 4 o'clock. Until then, whatever you do to Mother Nature, do it for land's sake. Thanks, Bill. And thank you.